Happy Father's Day. Um, alas, here we are, and this is the text in front of us, Second uh, Kings 8, chapter 16 and following. Uh, so far, well, when we last were in Second Kings, we saw how the sin of God's people in the northern country of Israel has gone on largely unchecked for generations. Uh, Elisha has been a prophet and a light in the darkness who's been a minister of grace so far, saving and helping and delivering and restoring. But we saw in just the previous text in 2 Kings how he's kind of turned to judgment. Um, as, as Ralph Davis, one commentator, says, Israel has been sinning away her day of grace. And so Israel, and in particular, Ahab and his family and his dynasty has sort of been this great big reservoir of evil that has looked unshakable and unbreakable. But what we saw earlier in chapter 8 is that that dam is just starting to crack and to leak a little bit. Uh, And so we're going to talk a lot about sin this morning and its consequences So I thought it'd be helpful for us to define sin before we get into it. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism says that sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Now that is an extremely broad statement. Basically, in in any way that you don't measure up to the word of God, it's sin. So it does not take very long to find that, right? Whether you're looking outside at the culture and the society and the world, or whether you're just examining your own hearts and your actions and your feelings, it really just takes a split second of searching before we find something that we can call sin in the world. Uh, now, we could look outward, but I think primarily this text in Second Kings is calling us to look at our own hearts. Uh, because as a lot of Second Kings has been dealing with, we're, we're talking about Israel and Judah, God's people, We're not looking out at Egypt, we're not looking out at Assyria or Babylon, but at Israel. So a lot of this text is is calling us to examine ourselves, remember um, what sin is, and be warned of the problem of unchecked sin in our lives. Uh, So the 4th of July is coming up. I'm sure a lot of you parents will be telling your kids, don't mess around with fireworks. Um, Probably some adults need that message as well. Uh, Don't mess around with fireworks. Uh, Similarly, do not mess around with sin. You don't play with it. You don't entertain it. You don't compromise. Because, as our catechism says, every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. You don't want to find yourself like Israel, having sinned away your day of grace. You don't want to find yourself like Israel, scoffing, at consequences that you think may or may not come at the end of the day. Uh, Now, we are going to have to move through this text at kind of a brisk pace. Uh, We're going to read about a chapter and a half. Uh, We're going to summarize another chapter and a half. So we're going to move briskly. I recommend having your Bibles open if you do have them or your phone. Have the app open. Uh, But we are going to examine four reasons that sin is so dangerous from 2 Kings. Uh, So, before I I read, let me pray for us, and we'll read this text. Our great Heavenly Father, uh, as we 
Um, and your church have prayed a lot this week and been reflecting the meeting of the General Assembly. Great is your faithfulness. Uh, you have provided for us, your church, for many, many years. You've spoken your word to us. You've kept us. You've preserved us. And so we do pray that you would be faithful once more in these next few minutes as we read and hear your word. We do pray, as Samuel himself spoke, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray for your Holy Spirit to be with us, to help us understand, help us know, help us love your word, and we pray that you would help us to live it out. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So begin reading at 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 16, and we're all the way through chapter 9, verse 28. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. In his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Joram passed over to Zaire with all his chariots and rose by night, and he and his chariot commanders struck the Edomites who had surrounded him, but his army fled home. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah. She was a granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. He also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done, for he was son-in-law to the house of Ahab. He went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to make war against Hazael, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. And King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. Then Elisha, the prophet, called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you, king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth-Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house, and the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. When Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, You know the fellow in his talk. And they said, That is not true. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth-Gilead against Hazael, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. So Jehu said, if this is your decision, then let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. And Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, take a horseman and send to meet them and let him say, is it peace? So a man on horseback went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported, saying, The messenger reached them, but he is not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus the king has said, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. Again, the watchman reported, he reached them, but he is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Joram said, make ready. And they made ready his chariot. And Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out, each in his chariot, and went to meet Jehu, and met him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelites. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, is it peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be, so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah! And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders, so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar his aid, Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelites. For remember, When you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him, as surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah the king of Judah saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagen, and Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by Ibliam, and he fled to Megiddo and died there. And his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. Amen. Well, there is uh, clearly, 
clearly a lot of history there to go through. Uh, I hope I don't disappoint you when I say we're not going to be able to answer all of the details and all of the questions you're going to have about this text. We're going to keep it big picture. Like I said, four, four reasons that we find sin is so dangerous in this text. <clears throat> Number one, sin corrupts. So, if you look at the first section here in verses 16 through 24, the very first thing to notice, the very first verse, is that we're talking about Judah. Uh, Judah has not been mentioned in the book since chapter 3. Judah has not even been the focus of the book since 1 Kings. Judah has not been the focus of Elisha's ministry at all. In fact, Elisha's hardly dealt with the southern nation of Judah. And so why bring them up now? Well, the answer is in verse 18. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. Why bring up Ahab in a section about Judah? Remember, Ahab was the king of Israel. But what we see is that Ahab's daughter has now married the king of Judah. Uh, And so we see the, the, the family of the king of Israel and the family of the king of Judah start to come together uh, and mix. If I can put together a, a, a silly hypothetical illustration, back before World War II, if Adolf Hitler's daughter had married Winston Churchill's son, if they had gotten together, you can imagine all of the citizens of the UK would have said something like, don't you think this is a bad idea, Prime Minister? This is a terrible idea. But Ahab and Jehoshaphat married their two children together. And I would, I would, uh, I would say this, you might be getting lost a little bit in this text because there are actually two Jehorams whose names both get shortened in a nickname sort of way to Joram. There are two Ahaziahs, and there actually end up being two Jehoshaphats as well. As one commentator says, this is all sort of a little bit deliberately disorienting. You really lose track of what's going on in the story, sort of on purpose, to show that Judah and Israel are becoming way too much like each other. Judah, who is the the promised southern nation where, where the Messiah was going to come from, the nation of David, is starting to be infected by the evils of King Ahab. Uh, Another way it gets put by one author, Ahab's cancer has metastasized to Judah. That's what's going on here with the reign of Jehoram, king of Judah. And so it shows us when it comes to sin, that sin corrupts. Unchecked sin infects us like a virus. The, the littlest virus that gets into your life, it always wants to spread. It is not content with just a tiny little sliver of your life. It's not content with a tiny sliver of your time or your heart. The same way that you start to look and sound like your friends that you hang out with, the same way that you start to look and sound like your spouse after you've been married for a while, 
Uh, you'll continue to be sort of shaped and molded and conformed to the image of that very small sin that you keep in your life. So one of the things this text is calling us to is to, to beware of how we're leaving that door cracked open to let sin into our lives. Because even the smallest thing will spread. I mean, you could say this, this, this whole text and, and really the whole sermon that we're going to talk about is, is impressing upon us the need for sanctification. Impressing on us the need to put to death our sin and to grow more and more in righteousness and holiness. And there are a lot of biblical examples of sin sort of spreading. In Hebrews, do not let a root of bitterness spring up in you. Now, that goes for each one of our own hearts, but it also goes for, for the body of the church as a whole. Do not let bitterness spring up. Again, 1 Corinthians, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. The influence of unbelievers can turn your heart. Here's a different one, different perspective. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, as Jesus is talking about self-righteousness and the pride of the Pharisees. Those things start to spread. Sin is contagious. It is poisonous. It can't be contained. It really is like an addiction, and we cannot stop whenever we want to. So we're to do everything that we can to make sure that Satan does not get a foothold in our lives. So if we see any bitterness, any pride, any ungodly influence, any lust, we're to be rid of it immediately because it will spread. Sin corrupts. Secondly, uh, sin persists. So that's Jehoram. If you look at the, the next section, verses 25 to 29, uh, now, the book of Kings spares us the details. Uh, the book of Chronicles, not so much. Jehoram, who's just reigned, dies a really disgusting death. It has to do with the disease. has to do with his bowels. I can probably leave it right there. Um, you can go to Second Chronicles and read it if you want to. But his son, Ahaziah, takes the throne. And what gets repeated again as Ahaziah's reign gets summarized, his entire epitaph is to tie him to Ahab as well, right? So verse, uh, verse 27 of Ahaziah, he walked in the way of the house of Ahab, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done, for he was son-in-law to the house of Ahab. The end of verse 26 references Omri, king of Israel, who was the father of Ahab. And so the sin has persisted. Does the sin stop when a new king takes the throne? No, it doesn't stop. Why is that? Well, practically speaking, because uh, now this daughter of Ahab who gets married into the family is given a name, Athaliah. And again, another thing that Chronicles tells us is that Athaliah became her son's biggest, most influential counselor. Ahaziah did not weed out the evil, wicked influence in the kingdom. And so just because a new king was on the throne, just because there were new circumstances, just because one man died, it, it didn't end up solving the problem. This sort of rebellion in Judah has become a generational problem. The sin has persisted. 
Uh, so, being in Memphis this week, I was reintroduced to my least favorite thing about the South, which is the cockroaches. Um, I've really forgotten how big they were and how fast they were and um, how prevalent they were. It's not fun. I think one almost started crawling my foot and I freaked out. Uh, unchecked sin is a lot like a cockroach. Cockroaches have a reputation for being resilient, right? They, they, they breed very quickly. They lay lots of eggs. Chemicals don't work on them as other bugs. They run fast. And the only way you can kill it is to stomp on it. You cannot very gracefully sort of lean down and, and pick it up and shoo it out the door like you can with some other insects. You have to stomp on it and kill it. Sin needs to be stomped on and crushed. Uh, again, Ralph Davis, it's just a great line here about sin. Apostasy never dies a natural death. Sin never dies a natural death. We need to be aware of that. If you think this sin will just go away in my life and someday I won't have to deal with it anymore, you've got the wrong attitude towards it. It will be there unless you take action. So how do you end a life of sin? The Bible over and over tells us to expose it. Confess your sin. Confess it to God. Confess it to other people. Bring it out into the light and then stomp on it. You squish it. As Jesus says it, it's better to cut off your hand or pluck out your eye than to go to the fires of hell unharmed and whole. Because unless you cut off that sin for good and take drastic measures, it will remain. Sin persists. That's what we see. Now, thirdly, and I told you we'd move briskly through this, the first part of chapter 9 Beginning at verse 1, number 3, sin betrays. So here's where Elisha comes into the story at the beginning of chapter 9. We've known that Israel's king, Jehoram, uh, who, if I can remind you, he's the king that Elisha's been dealing with this whole time, uh, and Judah's Ahaziah, who is the persistent cockroach, Go into war together against Hazael, king of Syria. Jehoram is wounded, has to go home to Jezreel to recover. Ahaziah goes to visit him. Meanwhile, at the battle site in Ramoth-Gilead, General Jehu is strategizing with some of his other commanders while the war goes on. And Elisha sort of sets this plan into motion. He sends one of his, his student prophets to go to Ramoth-Gilead and anoint Jehu king. Now, it's a, again, there are a lot of questions here. Why does, why does Jehu send somebody? Why doesn't he go himself? Um, why does he tell his, his, his prophet to, to run away and flee and don't linger? Uh, why is Jehu so hesitant to tell the truth about what happens? I think... A good commonality between all of those things is to remember that this is a treasonous act. It's a treasonous act to anoint a new king and to overthrow the current one. So probably it's a little bit more of a covert act. 
but the upshot of it all, even though Jehu tries to hide it, it, it turns out everybody's on board, and Jehu's anointed king. Uh, you've got the army on your side. You've got the, the generals and the commanders. Uh, pretty good sign that things are going to go well for you. Again, as we looked at last time in 2 Kings 8, all of this harkens back to 1 Kings chapter 19. The very original prophecy to Elijah that told us about what was going to happen in the future. 1 Kings 19, after Elijah had won that great famous war over Baal on Mount Carmel and rained fire down from heaven. And immediately after that, Ahab and Jezebel just seemed to bounce right back. And they put a bounty on Elijah's head, and he flees, and he runs, and he's righteously angry that Israel continues to sin and continues to forsake the covenant. And God tells him four things. I've left 7,000 people as a remnant who do still worship the Lord. I will anoint, well, you will anoint Elisha to take your place. You will anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. You will anoint Jehu to be king over Israel. Jehu is the final piece of that puzzle. You might be thinking, okay, you've already forgotten what my third point is, that sin betrays, right? After a very, very long wait, after it looks like Ahab and his family have eluded and escaped the consequences and judgment for a long, long time. Justice is finally coming. Unchecked sin is like a GPS tracker that gets put underneath your skin. Uh, for, some of you, for some of you, this might be extra relevant. It's like the Life360 app where you can track where all of your family members are at all times. Sin is finally betraying the wicked family of Ahab. And justice is finally going to track them down. Uh, Really, one of the most sobering warnings that gets tucked away for us in the Old Testament comes in Numbers chapter 32 when it comes to sin. It gets tucked away in all of this dialogue about other things going on. Uh, But Numbers 32 says, one of the scariest lines in the Bible Be sure that your sin will find you out. That should send chills down your spine when you read that. Because how many of us don't struggle with sin? We all struggle with sin. God warns us over and over again, we we can't fool him. We can't fool other people. We can't fool even our own selves. Sin betrays because it ends up promising us so much, doesn't it? It promises us a better life. Sinful temptation promises us we'll feel better. We'll finally get our way. We'll be the winner. Everything will be good. It betrays us because it promises us so much security and happiness. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it promises us there will never be any consequences for you doing this thing. But the consequences do come. Sin often blinds our minds, and we end up tricking ourselves into believing that there will not be a reckoning. But with Elisha moving to anoint Jehu, 
the final chess piece gets put into place, and it's going to be checkmate on Ahab. Sin's empty promises to Israel are about to be exposed for the lies that they are. Which leads us, fourthly, to the final points. We see, number one, sin corrupts. Number two, it persists. Number three, it betrays. Finally, number four, sin destroys. It might be more accurate to say that sin leads to destruction. This place in particular is where it might be good to have your Bibles open as, we, as you follow along. Starting in verse 14, Jehu's been anointed with a very specific mission. And he goes on a rampage. Um, if he were not an agent and minister of God's justice, you might say he goes on a killing spree. The first thing that Jehu does is ride his chariot, take a company to Jezreel to find Jehoram and Ahaziah, and he executes them. Uh, then, after our text, beginning in verse 30, he had met those kings just outside the city. He continues on into the city, and he finds Queen Jezebel, who is still alive, uh, who survived uh, her husband, Ahab, who passed away a while ago. Um, he has Jezebel thrown out of a tower and trampled to the point that there's not even enough left of her to be able to bury her. Further, beginning in chapter 10, verse 1, he sends word to Samaria, the capital city, and he has 70 of Ahab's descendants executed as well, beheaded. Verse 12, as he's traveling to Samaria, he happens to run into 42 relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and he has them executed and slaughtered. Uh, finally, verse 18, he begins uh, this, this clever sort of ruse to get all of the prophets and worshipers of Baal into one place, sets up all of his people around the building, and has all of those prophets and worshipers of Baal killed. Uh, by, by my count, that is at least 115 people, probably closer to 200 or even more. Right, that is, it is bloody. But in all of these actions that Jehu is going through, he is, he is fulfilling God's word of justice in lots of different ways. The Lord, Yahweh, keeps receipts. And so for so long in the past, this has been building and building and building. Jezebel has been somebody who's killed the Lord's prophets and shed their blood. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel together conspired to kill Naboth, who owned that vineyard. Do you remember that story? Petty little Ahab just wants a vineyard for himself and has Naboth and his sons killed for it. Every one of Ahab's descendants uh, is, is prophesied to be killed for Ahab's actions. Jezebel's own death comes true word for word. And so even though it has taken a very, very long time, sin has finally come to destroy, or uh, God's justice has finally come to put an end to the sin and the wickedness. And if you can take it sort of on the other side of the coin, uh, Pastor Mark very helpfully said this as we were talking about Revelation 16. Again, a quote a commentator, God 
through this text, is vigilant to avenge his suffering people. And in fact, vindicating his people is right at the top of the Lord's agenda, and it is the constant anxiety of his heart. You see, judgment must come. Justice will come, and it's a very, very good thing that it does come. Which again sort of, sort of brings us to Revelation 16, which is one of the places that depicts for us that last day of wrath. And if you'll have noticed, one of those repeated phrases throughout that chapter was they, they did not repent. Over and over. And each one of those bowls of wrath gets poured out. They did not repent. Earlier in Revelation, uh, we've had all these different calls to repentance, all of these different pleas to believe in God, and they didn't work. And this is what happens when those calls to repentance don't work. Uh, again, as, as Pastor Mark sort of said, this is not a very sanitary text. This is not very wholesome. It is shocking. It is dreadful. And it is just. It is just for God to do. God cannot let sin go on and win. How could we praise him? How could we glorify him if he, go, if he went on to let his enemies and let our enemies win? What kind of story would it be the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, if, if Aslan had let the white witch live after killing so many people, that wouldn't be a happy ending. It wouldn't be a happy story. What kind of weak and changeable and, and unloving and impotent God would let the blood of his saints be shed and do nothing about it? That is not the kind of God that he is. He is just and it is the constant anxiety of his heart to vindicate his people. Uh, again, I've quoted him a lot, but Ralph Davis takes the Christmas hymn and tweaks it just slightly and says, Joy to the church, the queen is dead. Isn't it awesome that God comes to crush evil? Uh, but we, we wouldn't really be doing this text justice without answering the question, how do we escape this wrath and curse due to us for sin? The answer comes all the way back at the beginning of our text, chapter 8, verse 19. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant since he promised to give, him, give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. So if you notice, Jehu is not the hero of this story. The lamp of David is the hero. This picture of a lamp is used consistently throughout Israel's history to be a picture of the coming descendant of David who would sit on the throne forever. Because of God's plan to bring that lamp, even despite the corruption in Judah, Yahweh was not willing to destroy them. Now we could go on to the end of chapter 10. Jehu as a king ends up being corrupt himself. He actually does not worship the Lord. And, and actually, if you were to read through this text in full all the way through the end of chapter 10, 
You maybe get the sense he kind of relishes his job a little too much. Jehu is not a great is not a good king. And in fact, the daughter of Ahab, Athaliah, winds up sitting on the throne of Judah for six years after these events. The problems are not fixed by Jehu. And they will not be fixed until the lamp of David finally appears. God's people are delivered not by corrupt Jehu, not even by godly Elisha at the end of the day, but by the lamp of David and the light of the world, Jesus Christ. And so what does it take to escape the wrath and curse and to put to death your indwelling sin? It is to believe and have faith in Jesus Christ and to repent of your sin. That is all you need to do. He is the light that brings truth and life to the world. He is in Revelation called the Lamb of God that was slain and offered up as a sacrifice for all of our sin and now sits on the throne and is worshipped by all. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah whose scepter will never be taken from him and whose judgments are true and just no matter what. He is the rider on the white horse called Faithful and True whose sword and scepter will never be taken and he avenges the blood of his saints. And he is the bridegroom. who is the very light and glory of heaven and eagerly awaits that great wedding feast where he will forever delight in his people. And if you still feel discouraged by your sin, after this has been a lot of sin, it's heavy stuff, if you still feel discouraged or depressed even about your own sanctification and not growing enough, let me take one more line and I'm going to tweak it just slightly from somebody who wrote it. The Lord's commitment to you is dependent on something so much more solid than your own spiritual temperature. Your relationship with God is not based on the works of your own hands. Whether you fall into despair because of your sin or whether it's the pride of your own self-righteousness, your relationship is based on your Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Go to Christ. Seek his mercy. Rest in his work alone. Rest in his love. Amen. Let's pray together. Our great Heavenly Father, we give you all the praise and the thanks for Jesus Christ, the lamp that you have finally brought at just the right time for your people. And we thank you for his salvation and deliverance, for his strength, for his power indwelling us, even greater than the power of our own sin. We do pray that we, as your church, would be marked by humility, repentance, 
faith and love. And we do pray for more of your grace to be upon us. Oh God, even as we go from here today, this week, help us to put to death the sin that dwells in us, the pride or the despair that leads to death. Give us life and give us zeal to live for your glory, resting all the while in Jesus and his work and his love. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.